0: This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair number 51, August 2, 1983. We're going to continue our previous Easy Chair talk with John Stafford, only this time we're going to go into a different area. Some years ago, I wrote a book titled I believe it was 1965, a little paperback, Preparation for the Future, I dealt with uh, the inflation that was just ahead and what was going to happen to gold and silver and more. Uh, Thousands of copies of that circulated. I may have one around, but I don't know. (laughs) But The idea of preparation for the future has always been very, very important to me from the time I was a young man, and I've often discussed it with people, and we're going to discuss it with John today. Let me just throw in something. Back in the mid to late 40s when I was in Nevada, up in the Indian Reservation area and isolated ranching country. I was talking about preparation for the future with a few of the men there once, and one of them, a veteran cowhand, said, uh, he said, well, you know, about preparation for the future. He said, A while back I was at the spring roundup when we were branding calves and I wasn't careful like I usually am and I jumped off my horse and walked a few feet away to relieve myself. Suddenly I found I was watering an angry rattler. <laughs> and he said, uh, You gotta be prepared for the unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> Any comment, John? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know much about uh,
1: branding calves, although my dad, uh, I've got a picture of him with a 10-gallon hat on a horse rounding up uh, wild uh, horses in Wyoming because my uh, grandfolks, the Olsons and Staffords, uh, homesteaded in Eastern Wyoming, not too far from Lusk, where Jim Watt is, uh, in the early part of the century. Uh, but I think it may illustrate uh, an important principle, and that is that uh, by following uh, sound and financial concepts, and uh, and, and including uh, sound uh, pr- uh, concepts from uh, from Scripture and uh, God's law and God's word. Uh, we can uh, avoid the syndrome of second-guessing and worrying and uh, being blindsided by the so-called unexpected. In other words, if you're doing the right thing, again, you know, God will take care of it and has told us that in advance. So that, uh, say, in the investment business, by uh, uh, entering into a particular investment position uh, on the right principles from the beginning and with the right timing, uh, it almost doesn't matter what happens afterwards, uh, you will probably come out all right or possibly even do very well. So when people, uh, come up to me and say, oh, well, who could have known that interest rates were going to 20% or it was totally unexpected, according to all the economists, that, uh, the price of oil would go up fivefold or whatever, uh, my answer to that is bunk. And, uh, But even if you couldn't specifically have predicted it, which many intelligent people have uh, as far as many of these events are concerned, they have predicted them, it's just that nobody was listening to them uh, at the time. Uh, But even if you couldn't particularly predict the specific event, if you had positioned yourself correctly, uh, you would have either benefited greatly or at least not disbenefited uh, from what eventually, uh, did take place, which surprised everybody else. And even though I'm a member of the National Economist Club, I've never held myself out as an economist. And, uh, uh, I, I, I re- so I can, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't say ridicule them, but, uh, poke, uh, fun at them on occasion. And, uh, one thing that comes to mind, a couple of things that come to mind about economists, and uh, the advice that they give and the views that they have that everybody follows so closely is uh, not only that uh, if you had all the economists laid and and uh, uh, you would have, uh, they would never reach a conclusion, uh, <laughs> that uh, that also uh, when you read in the paper uh, all the time uh, the phrase, economist surprise." And it seems that they're always in a perpetual state of surprise. (laughs) Uh, They never uh, seem to be in sync with the markets. They never seem to be in harmony uh, with the economic trends. And uh, they seem to be living, to refer back to our previous tape, uh, in a world of fantasy and constant self-delusion. So my instincts have always served me well, and I'm very glad... uh, now in the last many years because my clients have been quite fortunate uh, in their investments uh, that uh, I dropped both Econ 31 and Econ 32 Mm -hmm. at the University of Maryland in successive semesters because within the first class period or two uh, all I heard from the professor, the Neo-Keynesian professor, was gobbledygook and I feel that if a person can't uh, intelligently and clearly express the idea that he has in mind without using a lot of jargon and uh, so forth and so on that uh, I'm not interested in what he has to say. Yeah, so I learned my economics uh, from the and finance from the school of hard knocks, putting my own money on the line for years and years before I even had the temerity to think that uh, I had any right to offer advice to anyone else as to what they should do with their money.
0: Well, you know, we Lost a very good friend here not too long ago in the past month, as a matter of fact. He was the bank manager at the local branch of Security Bank. A classical scholar, by the way, with a degree in uh, oh, unusual classical unusual for a banker. <laughs> yes. And he was at one of our staff breakfasts just recently before he left, promoted to another branch, branch bank. And he made this remark about bank economists. He said, Bank economists can give you the most brilliant and learned reasons to explain why they are always wrong. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that sounds like energy experts. The Wall Street Journal, on the, I think, uh, top half of the second, of the first page of the second half of a recent uh, uh, article, of a, a recent edition uh the article uh, i think was entitled uh, uh energy experts almost always wrong and it, and, it, and it pointed out that uh, almost all of the people who hold themselves out as energy experts or consultants are almost always wrong 85% of the time uh and uh and I, again they're they're totally out of harmony uh with the flow of uh of what's happening in the world uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, with over-intellectualizing. But I think a lot of it has to do with the, the fact that they're not soundly based. I remember, you know, from Scripture, Matthew uh, in particular, uh, where uh, Jesus talks about uh, building your house on a sound foundation of rock versus a, uh, an unsound foundation of sand. And when the storms come and beat against it, the one is washed away and the other one holds. And I think that this really goes to the heart of, uh, of why these people are so consistently wrong to the point where by doing the opposite, you can be a winner a mm-hmm. uh, vast majority of the time uh, because uh, their their thinking or lack thereof is not soundly based and mm-hmm. uh, perhaps because they don't have a, a theological basis for it. As I said, my uh, workshops were entitled Investment Strategy, from a political perspective, and I found myself saying a lot of things which uh, were true and they worked. Uh, and I think, from my early uh, training uh, uh, in uh, uh, religious uh, topics, that even you know, without knowing it subconsciously, I had some good, sound reasons and foundations mm-hmm. for. Uh, giving people the advice that I was giving them, but uh, my personal quest uh, recently, the last two or three years, has been to try to find the proper uh, scriptural and, and theological foundations for uh, the principles and advice uh, that uh, that I've been articulating uh, in my letter and at these investment workshops and in uh, direct dealing with my clients uh, as a broker and investment advisor.
0: Now, to get to some uh, specifics, John, Uh, a few days ago, we were at the St. Francis Hotel where you had been attending the uh, Conference on Investments, and the men there were divided between... uh, an inflationary expectation, and a deflationary expectation. Do you want to comment on that specifically? Because it makes all the difference in the world how a person prepares themselves. Exactly. You have to know
1: what war that uh, you're likely to face to be able to uh, prepare for it. I think that uh, to be forewarned is to be forearmed, so if you know uh, or have a a reasonable... uh, uh, expectation that uh x will happen, that you'll prepare for X rather than Y. Um I'm glad you asked this question because this of course is a uh a major uh uh topic, a very important one in which there's quite a, a bit of division and even among the professionals. And uh maybe I could start by doing something I think is extremely important and uh perhaps we're uh having uh, uh, a loss by losing Senator Hayakawa of California uh, because um, he apparently was the only semanticist in the United States Senate. And I think when you have uh, legislation uh, which is deceptive in its title, such as the Tax Equity and Fairness Act (laughs) or the Fair Credit Reporting Act or the Bank Secrecy Act, et cetera et cetera, etc cetera, uh, we need uh, somebody there who will fight the orwellian double speak yes. and uh, and newspeak uh, uh, type of thing that's going on today uh the the outright deception so if you uh to to address this topic, I think it's important to start with a proper definition and uh, so what I would say is that uh, contrary to what most people uh, uh, mean when they talk about inflation and depression and and inflation that we should concentrate not so much on the effects which is the increase or de- decrease in the general price level but rather on the cause which is the increase or decrease in the total quantity of money and credit uh, in the economy and not just this economy but the world economy because what's going on in terms of credit creation outside the United States has an impact on our own markets. let's say the stock market because that money pours in here uh, and, uh, you know, is a demand factor, let's say, for stocks. So you have to look at it from a total worldwide view. Uh, to me, inflation, by Noah Webster's dictionary anyway, means an increase, uh, an excessive increase, in well, an increase in the quantity of money and credit. And uh, if you have uh, price inflation as a result, it means that there was an excessive creation beyond the productivity factor and deflation just the opposite and that a deflation as a matter of fact would not only be a reduction in the quantity of money and credit but also uh, would have the result of increasing the purchasing power value of whatever currency unit you're talking about depending on what country you're in. Uh, if you were in Argentina, <laughs> you've seen uh, a huge decrease in the value of the uh, currency. Both internally and externally against other currencies. The same, obviously, with Mexico. I think just a few, a handful or two of years ago, uh, the ratio was six to one uh, Mexican pesos to the dollar. It got as high as 180 to one mm-hmm. uh, recently, which means that the Mexican peso has uh, been reduced in value uh, by a factor of 30 times. So it's uh, you know worth 30 times less uh, is one way to put it or it only has one-thirtieth of the value that it had uh, some time ago. And many American investors who foolishly put their money down there to get a, quote, higher rate of interest, unquote, or maybe to avoid taxation, whoever knows uh, what their reasons were, uh, were uh, perhaps making a higher uh, rate of interest, but uh, their principal was at risk. And uh, this was a very, very stupid thing to do, and it reflected a lack of... Of understanding about this inflation and deflation argument, something that ties in directly with that is that uh, uh, I think it was uh, will Rogers who said that uh, about bonds that uh, i 'm not so much interested in the return on my money as I am the return of my money
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so in an inflationary environment, if you put your money in owed assets or in dollar denominated assets such as bonds uh, where there is a promise to pay uh, that is a very foolish thing to do because uh, the issuer of the security uh, is at some point in the future either going to renege on his promise to pay or will not be able to and either way it has the same effect on you you will lose money mm and you will lose the purchasing power uh, value that you need to provide for your loved ones, your family, and and to participate in the work of the church. Mm-hmm. So uh, I come down on the side of inflation uh, being the prospect uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, partly because there is no evidence to the contrary, and I'm very evidence-oriented and fact-oriented, And everything that I see, almost without exception, I guess the only exception would be an accidental deflationary crash that, you know, might come out of the blue. Uh, but without one exception, I see all the governments of the world, uh, participating in a coordinated, deliberate policy of destroying the purchasing power value of their currency, whether it's, uh, in britain uh, driving down the pound to a dollar 50 recently uh for the purpose of uh, uh stimulating exports or whether it's uh, some other country to uh, i won't name them to uh, pay for uh, arms purchases uh or whether it's in this country for the purpose of making it easier for uh, overly committed debtors to pay off their debt obligations so that the institutions that they borrowed from don't go under and bring down the whole economy. Whatever reason you might give or they might give for doing what they're doing, this is the reality of the policy and I think that uh, as I said my September 81 uh, letter uh, that uh, the government of the United States uh, will use all the anti-deflationary firepower that it can to keep the economic and financial ball of wax together. And uh, if that means uh, driving down the value of the currency, the U.S. Uh, dollar, the so-called uh, dollar, it's really a Federal Reserve note, which is neither Federal nor Reserve nor really a note, because it's not a promise to pay, uh, by a factor of ten times uh, say, in the next five years, where it took 50 years to do the same thing uh, in the past, uh, I think that they will do it, because if for no other reason it's the easy way out, and we were just talking in the previous session about this being the age of irresponsibility, uh, that's the irresponsible thing to do, and so, therefore, you can count on them to do it. Uh, the obverse of that coin uh, is to say uh, that you should be in gold or in gold-related assets uh, when you're facing uh, an inflationary prospect uh, because, again, going to the responsibility thing, being long gold or owning gold is the same as being short human nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, selling short is to sell something you don't own at a high price hoping to be able to buy it back at a lower price. And... Uh, I think that uh, being short human nature, counting on human nature to, uh, to be bad, or to be flawed at least, uh, is uh, about the closest thing to a sure thing that the markets ever give you. <laughs> so uh, that, unfortunately, is a prospect. I don't like it. I don't endorse it. I have been vigorously uh, opposing uh, these policies uh, myself uh, as a citizen. But as, a, as an investment advisor and newsletter editor and a publisher, I have to give my uh, uh, clients and subscribers uh, uh, good, sound advice based on a realistic assessment of the uh, situation and not some fantasy world hope, mm-hmm. uh, unrequited and false hope uh, about uh, maybe interest rates will go down or... You know, maybe bonds will be restored in market or purchasing power of value. Uh, but I just can't, uh, I can't tell them something that isn't true. And the truth is that we're heavily, heavily committed the other way. And I could give you a long list of uh, reasons, including specific uh, statutes and uh, executive orders of the president and other uh, tools which the government now has, uh, particularly the Monetary Control Act of 1980 to carry out uh,
0: this policy uh, as I've described it. How soon do you expect hyperinflation, and how long would you estimate this age of inflation will continue?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned what is uh, the title of Hans Senholtz's book, because I think Professor Senholtz is one of the great men of our time, and hopefully will be recognized as such, and people will start uh, applying the principles and ideas that he's been expounding for oh many, many years now at Grove City College and elsewhere. Um, In terms of of, uh, how soon we're going to have hyperinflation, I don't really think that that's the question. I think the question is at what stage of the hyperinflation are we already in? And uh, I would recommend to the hearers of this tape But they get a copy. It comes in paperback and costs only two bucks or so from the Foundation for Economic Education and other uh, such uh, organizations, Northwood Institute, Grove City College, and Laissez-Faire Books. uh, Fiat Money Inflation in France, Mm -hmm. because we're basically doing, that was by Andrew Dixon White, who was the the first president of Cornell University. He uh, outlines uh, just the historical pattern of how the uh, French... uh, Asignan uh, currency was wiped out uh, at the time of the French Revolution before the rise of Napoleon. And uh, we're basically following exactly that same pattern. And uh, I believe that uh, the last two years were just a normal, cyclical, temporary pause uh, in the longer-term process. How long this can go on, no one knows. I don't know. Uh, I don't know anyone that uh, can tell you with certainty. But there is a principle which sounds a little strange, a little crazy, but it really actually works uh when you're dealing with markets, and that is that a trend once set in motion continues until it ends. And uh it, what that means is that you have to go with the flow, as Richard Russell says in the Dow Theory Letters. Uh, you have to stick with something until you see signs that it's changing. And... uh so uh, I see no signs at this point and no prospective signs for the next few years that anything will be done to uh, change uh, in a radical way from an inflationary prospect to a deflationary prospect. So I would basically count on this to be the case for the foreseeable future. Now, for the foreseeable future, I see, I mean, the next many years. I do see the possibility based on... Uh, economic studies of wholesale prices and the long-wave economic cycle that we could well have a very scary uh, recession, which might even be called a depression in the late 80s, which a lot of people would talk about as being deflationary. Uh, and again, in the mid to late 90s, it could well be that we could have a, a very scary economic decline, which could in fact be associated with a debt collapse and uh, actual deflation or restoration of purchasing power value of money uh, but uh, uh, that's a long way off. I think you have to monitor these things on a day by day, week by week, year by year basis but still have uh, the overview. I think overview is extremely important to have a context within which to work and then make reasonable modifications
0: mm-hmm. uh... in your
1: scenario as you go
0: along what you're saying is that we're going to go on having inflation because both the civil governments and the people want the kind of debt living we have exactly it's the easy way out uh, it allows
1: the uh, homeowner to pay off his uh his home in cheaper dollars. A perfect example of this would be just to look at the statistics for the decade of 1970s. In nominal dollar terms, which everybody looks at and no one should really care about, in my opinion, uh, uh, the average worker was uh, getting about $10,000 a year in 1970. In nominal dollar terms, uh, he was getting about $30,000 in 1980. In real purchasing power terms, he actually had two or three hundred dollars less at the end of the decade, uh, nine thousand, uh, well pardon me, about uh, sixty dollars less, nine thousand nine hundred and thirty some odd, uh, dollars in terms of real purchasing power. And so, he actually had a decline in real income. However, if he had bought a house, uh, for let's say, uh, in 1970, and maybe he had a 6% mortgage, when in 1980 the mortgage rate was 18 and the House had appreciated in nominal dollar terms to $90,000, well, at least on paper, yes, he was better off because the effect of the government policy of destroying the purchasing power of the dollar was that he beggared his creditor neighbor uh, he was not paying back the creditor, the savings the loan, the bank, the mortgage company in honest dollars uh, in terms of purchasing power uh, of the same value as he received to purchase his house in the first place. And that's basically what we've been doing the last 50 years. We've been beggaring our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been taking, in effect, from others something of uh, particular value today and paying them back in, uh, say, a currency unit, which is worth much less a few years down the line. And uh, we're beginning to see many of the negative effects of this. Uh, I could talk about Social Security. I could talk a lot about a number of specific uh, areas, uh, if you wish. Uh, But that, I think, uh, says in a phrase what the basic process has been. And it's really, if you want to get down to it, it's theft. And you're the expert in that area as far as biblical law is concerned.
0: Well, in 1936, a book was published, A World in Debt, by Tilden. And in the course of that, uh, what Tilden said was that uh, Roosevelt was trying to inflate the economy, but it wasn't working at the moment, because he said, inflation can only work when people have larceny in their heart. Yes. And he predicted that that was going to come before very long. And, of course, when the war ended, that's exactly what did happen. Mm -hmm. You had a different moral outlook, and people did have larceny in their heart. And in terms of that, what we can say is that when people stop having larceny in their heart, inflation will end, but you have a great many people today saying, uh, of course we know inflation is larceny, but uh, let's practice some larceny in the process. Exactly. They say,
1: well, this is the given, this is the environment that we're in, we'll just take advantage of it and uh, hang uh, the moral uh, aspects of the problem.
0: We're just not interested. And the result, of course, is that the whole world is going to go under because everybody's going to get into the larceny game.
1: Exactly. Why not? I mean, Mm -hmm. the people who have been on the outside looking in are going to
0: join in and say, why not? Yes. So we have the foreign uh, states who are borrowing from our banks with larceny in their hearts. The bankers have their own version of larceny in the process.
1: Yes, I think it was a Citicorp officer that said, we don't care if we never get the principal back as long as they give us these uh, 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 high-interest
0: payments. Yes. And the people in the street have larceny in their hearts. And then they wonder why the country is falling into more and more lawlessness. Exactly. But every age of inflation has been marked by a decline in ordinary law and order. Absolutely. Well, if
1: you destroy the basic accounting unit of society, which is the currency unit, the money, uh, you, uh, it has an, a negative effect on all other values, and mm-hmm. they're all pulled down into the pit.
0: We, one could almost simplify it by saying you either take the Lord and his Word seriously or you have inflation. That's right. You're going to pay a price for larceny in the heart. Exactly. And it shows up in all kinds of, uh,
1: of different ways. Uh, I think it leads, uh, among other things, to a, uh, a feeling which we touched on earlier of just taking the easy way out. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm quite concerned, this is a little bit off the topic of investments, I guess, but I think it is connected uh, with this uh, problem of uh, abortion on demand. And uh, I understand that uh, in the District of Columbia, uh, over 600 pregnancies per 1,000 pregnancies are terminated by abortion. Mm -hmm. Well, that's horrible, and but it's a perfect example of taking the easy way out and uh, with my investment clients for a number of years and trying to explain these principles to them, I uh, told them that uh, yes, there was a tax revolt uh, brewing and yes, Proposition 13 in California and two and a half in Massachusetts and so forth were evidence that uh, the people were uh, uh, getting fed up with taxation and high uh, general price levels, but I said that this Uh, type of uh, attitude on the part of the public would only continue until such time as the uh, price of the average uh, single-family residence held up or continued to go up. But once it leveled off Mm -hmm. or started to go down, you would have a tremendous demand for reflation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's exactly what we've had. And even though I've been critical of the Congress and critical of, uh, of the Federal Reserve and others, I think that they basically are responding to the wishes of the people. I remember Paul Volcker was uh, on television and uh, quoted in the papers uh, the other day when he went to the small town in Kentucky, and uh, they also quoted some of the merchants. And the local small town merchants were all telling Volcker, keep the money supply up because we can make inventory profits on it, we can raise our prices, and it's easier to cover our costs and amortize our mortgages. So uh, uh, I think really one of the other angles to this whole uh, uh, problem is that the people are have been systematically ill-led and misled by their leaders because we have few leaders who will stand up for the truth and tell the people what they need to do to have a sound economy yes. and sound financial markets and a sound uh, society. Rather, they've been pandering to the wishes of the people as expressed,
0: for instance, in the Uh,
1: public opinion polls.
0: Well, you mentioned abortion earlier. I think it's very, very interesting that when Rome went into an age of inflation, it also went into an age of abortion. I see. And the two continued side by side until the whole thing collapsed. Mm -hmm. And we when we got rolling into inflation in the 70s, also went into abortion. Right. Both have a common origin in sin, in the moral failure of man. So it wasn't a by-the-way subject. They're very closely related. And you have to deal with the heart of both problems, which is the moral problem of modern man.
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right, and I've been reading your book, The One and the Many, to try to get a better, uh, feel for the history of the philosophies of utopianism and, uh, so forth, and humanism and secularism that have infected the world over the years. There's another angle to this, which my uh, professor Scott Hahn at Dominion uh, Seminary is, uh, uh, very big on, and that is the concept of the family and the importance of the family mm-hmm. and the fact that the family is a reflection of the Trinity and the communion and mm-hmm. interrelationship uh, that exists there. Uh, and uh, what he's saying is that um, the uh, uh, abortion uh, problem uh, is partly caused by the fact that the high inflation and high taxes have put such economic pressure on the family that uh, many people are inclined to use abortion uh, as a way of uh uh trying to escape from let's say both parents having to take two jobs yeah. or to escape from uh, uh having to uh, you know earn more money or do without other things that they would like to do with the money that they do have so it's really destructive of the family which is the central unit of
0: society. Well, of course, we were dealing uh, in our last hour with the escape from reality. And what inflation is saying is that we don't want to face reality. We'll postpone it. We'll continue inflating the currency to pay off good debts with bad money. Right, refusing to acknowledge that there's a day of reckoning. An abortion is also a, a flight from reality. Uh, we have a drug culture. Again, a flight from reality. Everywhere you turn, you have a common problem. They want the world to be what their imagination says it should be, not the world of God and God's law. Absolutely,
1: and uh, this uh, shows up in uh, many different areas, uh specifically this problem involving social security, which uh, is I think uh, should be labeled uh, social insecurity, yes, and uh, or social false security because it gives people a false sense of security. I tell people, do not rely on uh, the representations of the government that you will be paid anything. It may well be that they will be paid something, as uh, Senator Proxmire was quoted some time ago as saying. What do you mean we're not going to pay off Social Security? We'll pay off Social Security. The dollars we pay off not in won't be necessarily worth anything, but we'll pay. <laughs> yeah. So maybe instead of 800 a month, the uh, top maximum for a couple, uh, you'll be getting 8000 a month in the year 2010. Uh, but maybe the price of bread will have escalated by 10 times to 6 or $7 a loaf. So, you know, you really haven't gotten ahead. But I think it's even worse than that because Social Security is basically a Ponzi scheme or, Mm -hmm. to look at it another way, a chain letter operation. And those who got in early, who paid in very little, Mm -hmm. get the greatest reward. But the people out at the end of the geometric progression who put in a lot will get nothing because there isn't anybody behind them to put up the wherewithal to pay them off. And unless there is a radical restructuring of Social Security, not this little uh, pity-patter uh, uh, changes that uh, were made as a result of uh, the appointment of the Social Security Commission a year or so ago, unless there are radical changes, uh, this is going to be a, a, a deception because people are not going to get what they think that they are entitled to, which they're not, by the way, uh, under the law. Uh, Social Security does not exist but for annual appropriations of the Congress. And if the Congress decided in any particular year not to appropriate the money, that would be the end of Social Security, at least for that year, because there are no trust funds. Or if they are, they're unfunded, just like the military pension fund to a large degree and to a certain degree the uh, uh, civil service employee uh, pension fund. So... uh, you you have the illusion, you know, the king has no clothes, you have the illusion of uh, having money and security when in fact uh, the opposite is true. So what I uh, have stressed with my uh, friends and clients for a number of years is to be as totally self-reliant as possible and not to look to the government as Big Brother or let George do it for you, but rather do it for yourself, and when you do for yourself, base what you do on sound principles, and uh, as you've pointed out, Rush, and you've done so much good work in this area, showing what the sound biblical principles
0: are, say, for preparing for your retirement. Mm -hmm. Yes, one of the things that's necessary here is to restore the integrity of the family and its responsibility here both in the area of education and in the care of its own members. In the second volume of Institutes, I call attention to two uh, rural counties uh, in Alabama, uh, predominantly black, but with no problems about uh, the care of needy children or anything of the sort, because believing in the old-time religion... When parents die and their children are left homeless, somebody takes them in. Mm -hmm. If elderly people are left without anyone to care for them, they're taken in by someone and they become auntie and uncle in that house. And they uh, try to avoid letting the authorities know of cases because they don't want those people messing in. Right. Now, if... Poor blacks in rural counties can do that. Why not the rest of us?
1: You know, it's really interesting you should say that. I hadn't thought about it specifically in these terms before, but uh, here I've been in Florida, was for uh, several years prior to coming back to Washington to uh, serve in the administration at the Interior Department. And... Um, uh, I was basically dealing with uh, the wealthiest people in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. I think in Boca Raton, Florida, where I was in the investment business, there were something like 832 millionaires just mm-hmm. in the one town. Um, in uh, Palm Beach, Florida, uh, or at least Palm Beach County, I have no idea what you know how many millionaires there are, and. Um, it was i mean it was almost insane um, it was insane the kind of money uh that was floating around i mean i made it a, a practice uh, as a uh, as a stockbroker uh, when i started out uh to um reduce uh reduce my list of customers to only those people who had at least a minimum uh million dollar net worth as a matter of fact, there was one a customer that I had that uh, uh, just was uh, pretty obnoxious, and uh, he had uh, more than a net worth of a million dollars, but he had a million dollars worth of securities, uh, which you know I could have bought and sold and made a commission uh, off of, which would have been ten thousand a year or more, twenty, thirty in my pocket uh, each year. And I went to the branch manager and said, "I don't want this account. Give it to someone else." Uh, because the people down there, well, I call it the, in southeast Florida, the me, 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 go, 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 get, get, get mentality. And uh, you have these uh, uh, poor, pathetic people, really, is the way I look at it. They might have a lot of material wealth and a lot of money and stocks and bonds and a beautiful house and so forth and so on. They really have nothing to live for. Uh, Mm -hmm. They don't have any purpose. They're not an auntie or uncle who are part Mm -hmm. of a a larger family and they have responsibilities and something to do and someone to care for unless maybe their uh, children visit them from New York or New Jersey or Pennsylvania uh, on occasion uh, and so forth and so on. Um, They they really have very empty lives. Many of them uh, take to drinking or hanging around the country club or playing golf every day. Well, I mean... How many times can you play golf? 365 days a year. What have you done when you've done it? Uh, You've you've played golf. Well, how productive is that? It's not productive at all. I think these people have deluded themselves into thinking that this is a rich life. And uh, I was even told by a number of people that uh, it wasn't even so much the men but the women that recognized this, who missed the interpersonal relationships and friendships that they had up north. And, uh, you know, even though, yes, it was warmer, and yes, there were all these various advantages uh, to retiring in Florida, that uh, they weren't necessarily happy. And I saw a great, a gross amount of unhappiness uh, in the face of great material abundance. It was quite a lesson for me.
0: Yes, and uh, people have made a religion of material satisfactions And they're finding that it's a God that fails them. Precisely. No question
1: about Mm -hmm. it. I I had somewhat that same experience on a a much more limited scale. In my mid-30s, I made enough through some fortunate investments to uh, basically semi-retire. And um, fortunately, I I used most of that time for learning, travel, and reading, Mm -hmm. and, and doing a lot of thinking, which most people, because they do have families, I wasn't blessed uh, with children and whatnot uh, in my marriage, uh, that um, I did get an opportunity to uh, to do that uh, at a time when other people, you know, have mortgages and diapers and change and and um, so forth and so on. Uh, so it's given me some insights. But uh, it, one of the insights was that uh, really money does not buy happiness. It yeah. is not the way to go. It cannot buy love. And it cannot buy love, by the way, on the governmental level. We were talking about this yesterday, that uh, where you have uh, a third-party entity like government taking by force from one Mm -hmm. group of people and handing over to another group of people for ostensibly charitable purposes. And we're defining charity, I think, from Scripture as love. Uh, Well, then, if you're taking by force to give love, that's forced love. And so... The people from whom the money is taken don't get any satisfaction being uh, participants in a charitable enterprise, and even the recipients who are getting the goodies, uh, how, who, how should they even be expected uh, to be grateful to be the recipients mm-hmm. when they know that uh, what they're receiving uh, is the result of taking by force? As a matter of fact, I think it might be uh, to their moral credit uh, to uh, to be unhappy about being such recipients uh, because it reflects uh, at least a a twinge of conscience in there somewhere. You were talking about conscience uh, just recently. And uh, so uh, you can see this not just on the personal level but on the uh, um, cooperative level in the sense of the larger uh,
0: organizations of society where these same principles operate. Well, you know, John, uh, one uh, historical fact I often cite, so people may be getting tired of hearing me talk about it. The early church had its share of problems, its share of conflicts, and, of course, it was being persecuted. But one of the first things it tackled in the Roman Empire was the abortion situation. Abortion had come in. It was crude, so not everybody was able to uh, get an abortion successfully. So when the unwanted child was born, they would, for example, in Rome, abandon it under the bridges. Elsewhere, it would be a different place. And the Christians would go around these uh, places where they were abandoned and wait for these babies, because if they didn't, the wild dogs would devour them. Mm -hmm. and they would take them and parcel them out to the church members. And this was one of the uh, critical ways in which the church grew so rapidly. I was going to say, that's a great way to build up your membership. (laughs) And uh, can you imagine what would happen in the church today if, let us say, uh, the pastor... Or his representatives would knock on the door and say, uh, here's a baby for you, and go to the next door and see uh, them and say, here's a baby for you. It would create an explosion. Right. But it was done routinely there, which means they had a sense of responsibility. Right. They had a concern for that life. Now beyond occasionally getting them to sign a petition about abortion, you only get a minority of uh, Catholics and Protestants who are ready to fight uh, on the issue. That's an interesting contrast, uh, because here you have
1: uh, voluntary taking in of uh, children versus what the government is doing with Social Security. Yes. with social security when it started there were 30 contributors for every recipient or beneficiary today the ratio is 3 to 1 so mm-hmm. there is, there is only a tenth as many uh, uh people contributing uh as there are uh, beneficiaries and by the end of this century the first part of the next uh, assuming we get there uh, which i do uh that uh, there will be only two uh payers in for each taker out, yeah. well, to look at that in a family way, what that means is that a couple, let's say in their 40s uh, or maybe even 50s, whose own children have been brought up and have left the nest, and they've you know paid for in spades, especially through excessive taxation and public schools and so forth and so on, will then be forced, in effect, to take into their homes, if not literally, at least figuratively, through the Social Security tax, because they're still wage earners, or at least one of them is, uh, a full-fledged adult yeah. of 65 years of age or older, whom they don't even know, yeah. uh, who may have lots of illnesses, which will be an additional strain on their budget and interfere with their lives. So if people would only take their blinders off uh, and see what the obvious uh, actual consequences are going to be of the actions that they are currently taken and have taken in the past, I think that there would be a tremendous uh, response in the form of a revolt yes. against the way that we're going. Uh, and it's really sad. Bob Leiberg of Barron's uh, has pointed this out uh, editorially many, many times that uh, during the 30s when all of these crazy social welfare programs uh, were being uh, initiated and even such things as federal deposit insurance and so forth, that uh, many intelligent people pointed out at the time on the floor of the Congress and elsewhere that this would be the natural and predictable consequence of uh, the passage of these laws and given basic human nature being what it is and the nature of government being what it is, uh, that these would be the adverse consequences down the line, and that the purposes for which these programs were set up would not in fact be served. And yet uh, they went ahead and did it anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh, it almost reminds me of 1 Samuel 8, where mm-hmm. uh, uh, the king uh, uh, was called for by the people, and Samuel uh, tried to deny, it, and the Lord said, No, let them have the king, but tell them what it's going to be like when they have him. And he outlined exactly what was going to happen, that in contrast to God, who is the great provider, that the king would do nothing but take. Yes. He would take their money, he would take their first fruits of their harvest, he would take their children, their sons, and send them to war. He would take their daughters and make them bakers, and so forth and so on, and perfumers. But it, he would do nothing but take. And yet, what did the people do? They still demanded the king. For what reason? Just to be like everybody else. So here we are. I mean, whenever I hear somebody say, Oh, the United States is so backwards, we're under-taxed, like George Will saying, we're under-taxed. Or, we should be like Sweden, you know, they have this wonderful welfare state where everybody is provided for. I say, absolute nonsense. I mean, the people that came to this country who were driven out of the south of England by James I, who's given the greatest credit, apparently, for populating the colonies than any other man, and the people that came from Germany and France and all the other parts of Italy and Western Europe, They were coming to flee that same kind of socialistic nonsense and utopianism. And then we have all these people today who go around saying, we should be just like the way Western Europe has been and is today. Well, I say absolutely not. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of this republic is to be very different from the rest of the world. We're based on different principles, Christian principles. Well, I should get
0: out of the pulpit. You're the one that's the <laughs> ordained
1: minister, but
0: maybe you could follow up on that well, point. Well, a book that both of us know and think very highly of, Dr. Charles Rice's Beyond Abortion, says that given the premises of the decision, the courts now say that a person is not to be biologically defined, but legally so that uh, a fetus is a non-person. And Dr. Rice predicts that by the end of this century, given the continuation of the current trend, elderly people, sick people, will be defined as non-persons. right. And it could very well be that Christians may be defined as non-persons. I see that trend in the courts today. Well, the Jews in Germany were defined as non-persons for the purpose of the Holocaust. Now, people are not going to change that by being armchair Christians. It's only if they have the same kind of dedication those early Christians did who took in those unwanted and abandoned babies who are ready to say, I'm going to pay a price with my life somewhere down the road or my children will if I do nothing and I'd better pay a price right now for freedom. Right. An ounce
1: of prevention, I understand, is worth a pound of cure.
0: Yes and I think it's time for Christians to wake up to what's ahead of us. What we face is a fearful thing. It really is, and then Charles
1: Rice's book goes on, it's, uh, Beyond Abortion, The Theory and Practice of the Secular State. Yes. And tying this into Social Security, I saw some statistics recently that said this, that the lady who recently died at age 96 or whatever, in, I think it was Chicago, who had paid in $22 total in Social Security? That was the total tax in the mm-hmm. first year uh, that it went into operation, and then uh, she immediately retired. It reached age 65 the following year and was on the take for the rest of her life. I think she got upwards of 100 or more thousand dollars for a $22 contribution. Well, what it uh, is today is that a young person of age 20 will pay in 320. $1,000. Mm-hmm. Not $22, 320000 during his working life. Well, what is he going to get back for it? The government doesn't have any money. The only money government has is what it takes by force from the citizens through taxation, which is a forced exaction defined yeah. by the Supreme Court. Now, uh, if we get to that point, do you think that the people will pay up? No. They'll say, why should we pay for these older people? Besides, they're already crippled and uh, they need a lot of attention and medical care costs are high. Uh, what's wrong with putting them to sleep? Yeah. And so I see the threat of, I don't know what the correct term would be for killing the elderly.
0: Euthanasia.
1: Like, euthanasia, uh, the same thing as infanticide at the other end of the age scale. Uh, but I see that as a, as a literal, uh, physical real potential threat,
0: even in the United States of America. Yes, I do too. And as long as church members go on figuring all they've got to do is to fulfill their duties to the local congregation, uh, keep a pew warm periodically, uh, nothing's going to change. We're going to get more of the age of inflation, the age of abortion, and we'll move into the age of euthanasia and worse. Well, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Yeah,
1: Edmund Burke. Yes. And uh, I think you're absolutely right, Rush. Uh, We have to get off our our butts and uh, get
0: moving and uh, do the Lord's work. Exactly. And, of course, that's what our work is all about. And... That's why so we're, we're so intensely concerned with preparation for the future, not only in rethinking things, but in acting. Well, our time is drawing to a close, and I think we'll end it on that note. Is there a final word that you want to add, John? Well,
1: I hate to quote a uh, former Democratic congressman who I think was expelled from the House, but uh, (laughs) and I don't think he necessarily meant it in the uh, same way that we do, but uh, Adam Clayton Powell was always saying, keep the faith, baby. (laughs) uh, (laughs) uh, I really, uh, in a more serious vein, I think uh, we in fact do have to keep the faith and uh, trust God uh, to provide and uh, do His will and uh, we will be taken care of just as he's promised uh, in Scripture, both in the New and Old Testament.
0: Thank you, John. Uh, I'd like to uh, tell all our listeners that uh, you're going to be back for a month, a little later. And at that time, perhaps uh, there's some other subjects we can go in together, which, good? if I'd you would like to. to. Sure, thank you. Very good. Well, thank you all for listening, and we'll be with you again in two weeks.